Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst from Strata Central. Hey there, Rena. Hi Amanda, how are you? I'm doing well. I am I'm working my way through a rather busy period in Strata. I heard from a fellow lawyer very recently that lockdowns are our busiest periods. Things tend to go a little bit nutty when our Strata residents are in lockdown as we are in Greater Sydney and surrounds at the time of recording this. No doubt you're experiencing that craziness too, Rena. Oh, definitely, Amanda. I think also when people are at home, everything that's sort of been on their mind, they can see comes to the forefront and therefore everything becomes sort of an issue rather than when they're out and about or they're at work and they don't really notice certain things or they don't, they aren't as aggravated by them, so to speak. Yes, definitely. But we can do our bit to try and help reduce that aggravation. I'm sure you have many challenges at the moment, Rena, but I'm going to ask you first to pick one and share it with me and we'll see what we can do about it. What's your challenge this week? Well, this week, Amanda, we had a meeting recently where we had a pre-meeting electronic voting occurring so that the voting had obviously stopped 24 hours before the meeting. And then we end up having a Zoom meeting as well to consider the motions that were predominantly um, bylaw changes and amendments. And an owner that was present pre-electronically who had already submitted a vote was then present in person or through the screen via Zoom. Mm -hmm. And the vote that he had cast in the pre-meeting electronic voting was in favour of a particular motion. But then when there was discussion at the meeting, he then voted against the motion now, on the numbers, it didn't make any difference in this particular case. But my question, Amanda, is can someone do that or do we have to accept the initial vote? Because it's, it's just a bit strange. Like I think most people would not really normally turn up and vote electronically, which is number one. That's an anomaly I think perhaps hadn't been thought of at the time when the legislation was drafted. But how does it work? I mean, you know, in this case it didn't make a difference, but what if what if it did make a difference? Like do you say that previous vote has to count or the new vote has to count? How does it really work? Yes. Interesting that you say it's unusual for somebody to vote by pre-meeting electronic voting and then turn up to the meeting. I have had this question many times, so maybe it's not so unusual that people are either not understanding that when they have cast a pre-meeting vote, they don't have to go to the meeting and vote again, or indeed they do want to change their mind and they've taken a different view once they've thought about a particular issue and they want to turn up at the meeting and vote a different way. And my answer to this question when I've been asked in the past is that it is legal, possible, valid for an owner to go to a meeting and vote differently to how they may have voted in a pre-meeting electronic vote. Of course, these are meetings in New South Wales. We can have meetings that are wholly conducted by pre-meeting electronic voting. So then know that you don't have a chance then to vote again. But we are seeing, and you can let me know, Rena, how common this is 
for your buildings, buildings that have a mix of pre-meeting electronic voting, you can't attend, you're not sending a proxy, you can vote prior to, but then other owners who want to attend, be part of the discussion, can do that and the meeting's either face-to-face or on Zoom. There is nothing in my view that prevents somebody legally from turning up to the meeting and voting again or changing their vote and the chair of the meeting should be taking that most recent vote as the vote. Yeah, but that's what that's what we assumed that Manda was the case, like a proxy form, which if it had been received, then it's changed. You take the most recent one. So we, we did that. Um, yes. So thank you for that. Yeah, I just think sometimes that some meetings aren't really held by both types of mediums. Usually a pre-meeting, electronic meeting, usually on the whole, on the majority of cases aren't just done that way without having then a subsequent physical meeting or an electronic meeting where applicable. So, yeah, so most people only had the electronic meeting voting and that's it. You have the 24 hours before the cutoff and then it's wholly done that way. There's no additional meeting held to allow people to actually be present to voice their concerns or, or raise any questions or make any any amendments in any way. So... Mm. As far as I'm aware, there's nothing that addresses this kind of situation directly in our legislation. I'm sure you looked it up as well, Rena. If I do find something, I will pop it in the notes. But it may be that if we're seeing owners take this avenue of pre-meeting electronic vote and then turn up and vote again later, we might need something to clarify the position in a future amendment to our legislation. It's definitely a question that I've had a few times before. Well, that's good, Amanda. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> it's out there. It's well, happening. I should, have, I should have thought that. That's silly of me to think that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, my challenge for this week, this is a very, very important subject for us to be talking about. It comes from the recent tragedy that we have seen in the United States, the collapse of the Surfside building in Miami. And at the time that we are recording this, approximately 100 people have been pronounced dead from that collapse and the search for some weeks has been ongoing. I want to bring this to the podcast because the subject that I'm talking about, you may have guessed, is repair and maintenance of our common property. An incredibly important subject always, more so now when we have seen what we're seeing in the media, what we're hearing is that this collapse has been due to a failure to act, a failure to address some serious structural issues in a building that were indeed known to the community. Of course, you don't know the facts necessarily the accuracy of what we are reading in the media, but there is quite a bit coming out now about reports that were done for that building, discussions that were held within the homeowner association, as they call them in the US, and action that was demanded, an action that wasn't taken fast enough, and this tragic outcome that has happened overseas. My view, absolutely, this kind of tragedy could happen here in Australia. We're not protected from this, and I do most days of the week work with owners in buildings that are trying desperately to get their owners' corporations, their committees to pay attention to repair and maintenance, to have particular work done for fear that there will be, if there isn't already, structural damage, worsening of a building's integrity and danger to not just property but person down the track. 
It is probably the most common complaint that I see from strata owners is that their building is not taking repair and maintenance seriously. And we do have some important legislation now in place. We have some good advocates now in our space, including our building commissioner, David Chandler, when it comes to our brand new buildings and our buildings that are less than 10 years old. But we're talking here, as we were in Miami, a building that was 40 years old. We have plenty of buildings of that vintage right across our country. And I'm not sure, Rena, that our communities are paying enough attention and perhaps our legislature is paying enough attention to ensuring that those buildings are properly maintained and that there is swift action that can be taken when a community is not meeting their legal obligations. No doubt, like me, this is something that you encounter often, Rena. buildings that you work with, owners that you're dealing with, this need for proper repair and maintenance. Amanda, I mean, you're right on the mark in terms of this concern where buildings are trying to sometimes reduce the capital works fund in terms of how much money is being raised. And that's, I think, a big area because just recently we took over a strata scheme and the Capital Works Fund hasn't been updated for more than 10 years. So anyway, so we had to get that done. But the problem is that when people look at the legislation in terms of are they required to raise those funds, well, first of all, you you don't even have to engage an expert to do it. So I don't know how a lay person in a building can go around, look at the building and say, yes, this piece of equipment or these windows or this paint will last X amount of years. I don't know how a lay person would ever have that qualification or expertise. And then secondly, there is no requirement to actually raise the recommendations that's outlined in the Capital Works Fund year by year. And so what we try and do is we suggest to the Strata Committee that we raise those amounts, that we have a closing balance in accordance with what's been recommended. But then the committee may or may not agree, and that's one thing. And then when it goes to a general meeting, the owners may or may not agree. And I think the problem is that when you have so many people that, you know, live in in a community building, their personal situations in terms of, you know, finance vary. And therefore, some people do find it difficult to pay levies. And one of the reasons that they live in in an apartment is they don't have to have the outgoings of a house and maintain everything at their own cost. So there are, to be able to live in in an apartment, there are some economies of scale that are achieved by having the cleaner that takes out the bins and does all the common areas and etc. But then on the other, other hand, the converse applies was where you have to then replace and maintain. It's such a statutory requirement to do these things. And unfortunately, you know, we do see a lot of people get on the committee to make sure that work isn't done or that money's levies aren't raised. And, and I even had someone tell me that once. That's why he got onto the committee because he thinks that the committee is just spending money willy-nilly. And I'm thinking, well, so when I questioned him, I said, well, how, what do you mean? Are they spending outside the budget? Oh, no, they're not doing that. It's like, well, if budget is passed, the committee have to obviously consider quotes within the budget framework, but they are allowed to spend that money. And that is what it's been. Not that you have to spend the whole budget, but I mean, it's giving you a guideline of what we expect that we will need to pay in the upcoming financial year. So, yeah, I am very concerned, Amanda. When I saw that, I was like totally shocked. And, you know, when you see young kids being killed and you think, mm-hmm. to, myself, think to yourself, like, you know, what's really happened there? 
Mm. Yeah, and you've mentioned a few important things there, Rena. The Capital Works Fund planning, which we have uh, right across our country and our different jurisdictions, the requirement to have these uh, 10-year plans, it is in New South Wales at least. But indeed, the legislation says that plan is simply to be prepared. It doesn't necessarily have to be prepared by anyone who knows what they're doing. And it is to be implemented as far as practicable is the wording in our legislation. There is no penalty for not following the plan for not implementing the plan, though it is a legal requirement. And I too see buildings that don't have plans or have out-of-date plans. And then, of course, we do have the legal obligation, the statutory requirement. It's Section 106 in our Strata Schemes Management Act in New South Wales to repair and maintain the common property. Our courts tell us that that is an unavoidable, absolute, strict duty. There's no excuse for not doing that work. But in practice... What happens, and I see it from the lawyer perspective, is that this duty doesn't get met by some buildings. It is left up to often a single lot owner to stand up and say, this is not good enough. We need to do this work. In some buildings, it is multiple millions of dollars worth of work. So understandably, owners are not prepared for that, not willing to pay for that. And it takes one brave owner to stand up, point out the legal obligation, the failings of the strata committee, perhaps, or the majority of owners who will not approve work, go to a lawyer, seek advice put together a tribunal application, go through the rigmarole of tribunal proceedings, incredibly expensive tribunal proceedings, and obtain orders from the tribunal that work be done or that a compulsory manager be appointed to facilitate work that the community just can't get their act together to do. And often these are costs, legal costs that are not recovered by the owner. And very few owners will go all that way. I've worked with a few of them and they're very special people, but it shouldn't be that hard to get a community to meet their legal obligations. So I do think that something is going wrong in our process. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It's probably a few things, but we have seen, we are seeing the fallout that can happen when buildings don't take these obligations seriously. I think, Amanda, what you've raised some really good points. In essence, what you're saying is that the Owns Corporation must repair and maintain common property. It's a statutory obligation. But then on the other hand, you don't have the tools in the Act that will enforce that obligation. So on one hand, you've got this obligation that you have to, but then all the other tools that are in there about raising money, spending money, this, that, you know, capital works fund obligations, they don't marry up to each other. So therefore, there's a bit of a mismatch there. And therefore, I think that's where I, I think our legislation is failing owners because it's saying, well, you have to do this, but how you do it, it's up to you or you don't really have to do it or it's, it's you know, as long as you're sort of as close as practicable or it's in terms of how you implement the capital works plan. And to me, there's no point having a plan if you don't really have to do much with it, except just pay a bit of money. And then again, even the reports, I mean, some of them have been done, you know, there's a bit of obviously a market out there for these reports as they're required, but then the detail isn't there. And therefore, really, you've got to pay a few thousand dollars to get someone to really do a proper assessment of the condition of the current plant and equipment and paintwork and all the other bits and pieces in a building, and then make sure that as clear as possible, I mean, it's not, you can't sort of predict everything's lifespan, but you can give a bit of a guideline. But if you're only paying $600 for a report that someone, you know, is using a desktop and just puts a couple of numbers in, then really, again, you're not getting that 
accuracy, which I think sometimes means that people think, well, why should we file a report? Because that membrane should last more than, they've said it'll last 10 years, but it should last 20. We only got it done last year. But again, mm. if, if the quantity survey is not given that information, not going through all your perhaps all your invoices or your minutes or your quotes and approvals, then how will they know, you know, I mean, no one can open up a membrane and see when it was last replaced. Mm. So yeah. there's a lot of data that's required to give good, accurate reports. But I still think in, in the main run, the ones that we do have are still better than nothing, even though they may not be as accurate as, as they need to be. Yes, that is true. And increasing our knowledge that these reports exist and for purchasers to understand that they should be looking for these reports, they should be looking at the quality of the building, the quality of the maintenance that's going on. Is there any maintenance going on? I was reading an article earlier this morning coming out of Miami that said their apartment market has been really shocked by this mm. and it just hasn't been part of their culture as purchasers and it's an incredibly strong market there as we see in our East Coast. Purchasers don't take the same steps that we do see purchasers take here to investigate, to look at books and records, to have at least some understanding that the building should be well maintained. In Miami, they simply go in and make sure there's some money in their equivalent of the Capital Works Fund and they secure their apartment. Now that is set to change over there and it may be that that is what will ultimately drive some legislative change over there. And I think here there are lessons to be learned there as well. An owner that wants to achieve a great sale price for their apartment, I think sometimes we see owners try to hire things in the mm. records perhaps. Uh, very yep. often we might see committees say don't put that in the minutes because we don't, it will devalue our properties if we have on record that we need to replace the roof membrane in two years time and it's going to cost $100,000. Let's try and think of it the other way. Isn't that a good sign for your purchaser coming in that this is a well-maintained building? We have ticked all those boxes. We've got the Capital Works Fund. We are doing proper budgeting, proper planning. There won't be surprises for you, new purchaser down the track. That's certainly a building that I'd be keen to be buying in and they're the kinds of things that I should be looking for. So maybe this shift in the way we think about the value of our buildings might assist in changing the way that we manage them. Yeah, that's a very good point, Amanda. I think also it depends on the mindset of the people too, where people sometimes don't see money spent outside their own particular apartment as adding value to their investment. Whereas mm. if it was spent internally doing a renovation, that's you know, more bang for their buck as opposed to forking out money to fix the roof membrane where they're, yeah. they're, they're not the top apartment being affected by any water penetration, for example. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I do think our, our purchases are getting more savvy. We're spending more and more money on apartments. We have people who have worked hard for that money. They are perhaps at the top of their game in their work life. They are smart, they are savvy, and they are going to be looking more and more, I think, at these aspects of a building. So if you're in a building, you're managing a building, you're on the committee, you really need to be covering these off too. If we can't convince you on the safety front, then perhaps we can convince you on the investment front. Mm, exactly, Amanda. Okay, shifting gears over to your win for this week, Rena. Yeah, so this is a really wonderful win. I'd had, I've never used that term as a wonderful win, but we had a COVID case in one of our strata schemes in one of our large buildings. And at that time, the Department of Health had rung the building manager and um, 
unfortunately, the cleaner who does work for that building wasn't able to do a deep clean. So I was able to reach out to some of my contacts and other cleaning companies. And I had someone come down there within about four hours to do a thorough deep clean. And they just walked me through the process of how it's done. And because originally I thought that the whole building would have to be deep cleaned, but what they said, no, you just have to follow the steps of the person from when they park their car, where they go to the lift, where they then go up into the building. And it was lucky that this building only has floor-only access, so therefore owners can't go to any other floor except for the main common areas and any, any recreational areas as well as the car park. So mm-hmm. that really helped. So we were able to basically get all that done. You know, they were about four hours doing deep clean, but it was just one of those things, Amanda, where you just have such a peace of mind when, you know, you know that it's been done, that you've done as much as you can as a strata manager to ensure the safety of all the residents. And the fact that the cleaner themselves weren't able to do it and they didn't really try hard to try and find someone else. They left that to us to do, which is not an issue, I think, within itself, but it just meant that, you know, when, when you're asking someone who doesn't clean a building to come out and do this, even though it's a specialised mm. thing and it's obviously very expensive, but at least we knew that it was going to be done properly and it was done and in the time frame they told us and, you know, it was about a 30-page report of all the areas that they did and they took, you know, so many pictures and and um, showed us where they threw away the stuff and oh, yeah, it was just fantastic. It was just mind-blowing actually. Mm. You don't realise when, you know, you watch these people on TV and you see just a, a few seconds of someone cleaning, you, know, you don't know really what's exactly involved and it was mm. just, I was just felt so relieved that, that afternoon that it had been done. Mm. And I imagine those cleaning companies that have the ability to do these deep cleans are going to be the preferred cleaning companies for our strata buildings moving forward, even when we're on the other side of this. Exactly, man. And also too, I think when you don't clean a building and then you really go out of your way to try and help, it really makes a big difference, I think, to someone in our position. It just makes us feel like there is someone that we can find if if we have our contacts to be able to get this done. So yeah. Great. And did you have CCTV in that building? Yeah, we do. Yeah. So you could track where the person had been. Yeah, had been. So yeah, helpful. definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I, I spoke to them and they're really nice people and everything. So, I, you know, I got the areas that they've been to and where they'd been in the recreational areas as well. So I, I had their information from them as well as, yeah, the CCTV footage that, that we had as well if, if it was needed. And no further cases coming out of that building? No. There you go. There's your proof. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. My win for this week that I'm sharing also arises out of our current lockdown situation in Sydney. I'm hearing about more and more buildings using QR codes to check in visitors, trades, delivery people. Now, I want to be clear that at the time we are recording this, having a QR code for entry into a residential strata building is not a legal requirement. It's not mandatory. But I first started talking about this a few weeks ago on one of our Facebook Friday Lives and I heard from quite a few building managers and strata managers that they had managed to secure a QR code for their building through the Services New South Wales website. As I understand it, there isn't or there wasn't then a particular category for strata buildings but creatively managers were selecting the accommodation option which was really intended to be for hotels, I think. (laughs) As long as the owners corporation had an ABN, they were able to get a unique QR code through Services New South Wales and give residents the comfort that if needed, visitors, trades could be tracked as having attended their premises at a future date. Rena, are you seeing this with your buildings, QR codes being established? Yeah. 
definitely a lot of buildings are having them installed. But I don't really know, Amanda, how effective they are in terms of compliance because unless you have a concierge at the front desk mm. sitting there watching who's coming in and out, I don't know if people are actually following. Because in one building, one of my community members said to me that she saw a food delivery person into the building and he didn't even want to use it when she said, oh, you have to use a QR code. And he said, no, you know, he just wanted to deliver the food and go. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if you've got cameras, that helps, but not everyone's using them. So that's the thing, just making people comply is probably the other side of that coin. Yes. And also I am hearing sadly about some people being forced to use them and perhaps not having a smartphone and not being given access to the building because they don't have a smartphone and they can't check in with the QR code. Two points there. QR codes are not mandatory for residential strata buildings at the time I'm saying this. And also if you do have a QR code, you should have another means of checking people in if they don't have a smartphone that can necessarily use the QR code. So to your point, Rena, that's only really going to work if you've got a concierge or a building manager there at the front saying, here's a book for you mm, to sign if exactly. you can't use the QR code. So we certainly shouldn't be turning people away from their homes or carers away from visiting vulnerable people if they're not checking in with the QR code. But if it's something that sounds like it might work in your building, give your residents some comfort. And I would assume that some compliance is probably yeah. better than not having having the option at all. at all. It could uh, trace a positive case back to your building down the track and that would be helpful. It's something to look into. I will certainly put the link to the relevant Services New South Wales page in the show notes for this episode. And I think, Amanda, people assume that everyone's tech savvy and everyone speaks and understands English. Now, if you have a carer that doesn't read or write English and they don't know how to use the QR code. I mean, to me, they might even have a smartphone, but they don't know how to – they haven't registered with Service New South Wales, so therefore they, 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 can, mm. they can scan it, but it doesn't go anywhere. So therefore I think there's a lot of people that – could be people that don't – aren't yes. able to for some reason as well. So there's another area of people that really can't use those codes. But I, I totally agree with you that it's better to have them than not have them. Some compliance is better than no compliance at all, and at least if we can trace a case, it's going to be helpful for everybody in that building. Yeah, I think especially if you've got facilities like swimming pools and gyms as well and you have those open, you've decided to keep those open, which you're entitled to do in New South Wales at the moment, having yeah. QR codes there is a good idea so that you do have a record of when a resident even has gone to that facility if they've checked in. And we're all getting used to it. We're all, we're all used to the check-in now. It's almost second nature to get to a door and to scan that code. So I think it'll be like that for a little while to come. Yeah, until we, we become complacent again, then we don't do it. <laughs> it's amazing how we learn and then unlearn these and behaviors. Then so fun. Yeah, and then relearn. That's it. Well, thank you very much for spending time with me here today, Rena. I will send you out to continue being safe, being distant if you can, and I will be catching you next time. See you next time, Amanda. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?